You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. We'll be reading Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the tree of, of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Dana. You can be seated. Yeah, so in case you're, this is your first Sunday or just joining us, we're, we're coming to the end of a series we started back in the beginning of fall called Sacred, and what we've tried to do over these last several weeks, it just really spend some time in Genesis 1 and 2 and look and marinate and think about the goodness of God that is in uh, creation. But as you know, um, just by observation, uh, you realize that this isn't exactly how the world is. It isn't exactly how we experience the world. Uh, the world is a very um, unique mix of being beautiful and really, really broken. And so uh, the big question is like, what in the world went wrong? You know, I know there's things that are wrong with me. I know there's things wrong with this world. What in the world went wrong? And that's where Genesis 3 comes into play. Um, and so there's a lot in this chapter. And, and so sometimes when you, uh, when you preach, you've got to kind of narrow in. You know, I don't have two hours with you guys, which I'm sure you're amening. Um, and I've got about 35 minutes here that I'm trying to say, okay, I'm going to narrow in on a topic or, or an angle within Genesis chapter three. And so today I, I want to, I want to talk about shame. And, um, I, I recognize probably more so than I realized coming in this morning after doing the nine o'clock, this is kind of a heavy topic. It is. And, um, I don't know the goal is not to make it light. That feels weird. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so I'm just giving you a heads up. It, it is kind of heavy. And I know sometimes holidays can be heavy too. Thanksgiving can be hard on people. Christmas can be hard on them. So I'm not trying to, um, you know, add more heaviness. That's not my goal. Uh, I, I think I'm trying to expose something that um, is bringing a lot of destruction not only in our world, but in your life on a personal level. And that's shame. 
One of the things that we desire, one of our values here is we, uh, we labeled it genuineness, you know, and, and maybe another word that you can talk about it with is like honesty. Um, and it's one of the things that I, I hear from you guys often, that one of the things you like love about the community that you experience here is there, there's, a, there's a, a level of genuineness. There's a level of honesty and get it, you know, there needs to be some wisdom on how much you're honest, but uh, we're not trying to be genuine just for the sake of being genuine. The gen- genuineness is not an end in itself, right? It's a, a means to an end. And what, what I would put before you that honesty with God, number one, honesty with others and honesty with yourself is not the, the goal of wholeness, but it, it does move you into a path of wholeness and, and completeness or even a word that we would use, holiness. Like, I do think this is the, the journey that we all take as humanity. It isn't like we're gonna arrive. This is the, the path you are on, a genuineness with God, an honesty with him, and an honesty with one another, appropriate people, not with everyone, right? And an honesty with yourself is a path to wholeness. And what I wanna say to you, and I think we will see it this morning, that shame is the weapon, if not, as Kirk Thompson says in his book called The Soul of Shame, if not the most used weapon that Satan will use to keep you from God, to keep you from one another, and keep you from being honest with yourself, which then doesn't heal shame at all. And so my goal as best I can, is to hopefully expose shame for what it is and encourage us, just like God invites us into a more genuine, honest relationship with him, with one another, and with ourselves. Now, granted, I've got 30 minutes. I can't do everything about shame, just like I can't speak everything about marriage last week. And so I'm trying to stay in the text and realize that, hey, there's places where I could probably nuance a little better If you've got questions, thoughts, please come talk to me or talk to one of our pastors, whoever. We would love to talk to you more about some things that might be unearthed here uh, this morning. All right, so set that aside. All right, you ready? Uh, When Conlon was about three, four years old, I shared this story with you guys before. He's now 15, and I got permission to share the story again um, just to make sure he's good with it. So when he was about three or four, my wife was at a farmer's market thing in our town, and she was um, um, at a booth, you know, just kind of checking something out and just noticed that Conlon wasn't next to her. And so just like any mom would do or any parent would do, like, whoa, what's, where, where, did he, where did he go? She had a little freak out moment in that second there. And so she's looking around for him and then turned around and saw this little boy with his pants down to his ankles, uh, peeing on a tree. So <laughs> full moon, everything. And that butt looked really familiar because she had wiped that butt quite a bit of times, right? And sure enough, it was our little four-year-old uh, peeing on a tree. And, and in that moment, you know, you don't want to yell out his name because that would just cause everyone to turn around and look. And, and just like Kathy does so well, just walked up there and said, all right, let's finish it up and let's not do that again, all right? <laughs> There's something when you think about a three- or four-year-old doing that to where we do what we just did. We kind of laugh. We, we, we see it as something that's cute. There's an innocence to that, right? No one's going to go and, and shame a three- or four-year-old for peeing out in public. I mean, 
They did it quite a bit in the backyard, so they just thought <laughs> it's like free game everywhere. You see a tree, it's okay. So, uh, but if, if my 15-year-old would do that, right, we wouldn't be laughing and be like, oh, that's, that's really strange. There's been a, an innocence that's been lost. And I think we all know that and we all feel it. Yes, there's a... There's an innocence that's lost as we mature, and I, I don't think that's necessarily bad, right, in and of itself. But there's also a, a loss of innocence that I would say is really tragic. And we all experience it. We all feel it. And maybe some of us don't know exactly what that is and why I feel this way. It's interesting at the end of chapter two, and I said this last week, verse 25, the writer of Genesis specifically said that the man and woman were naked and they felt no, fill it in, shame. Why, why shame? I mean, it's not the only word that describes an emotion that they are experiencing. He could have used a lot, whole bunch of them. He could have used joy. They experienced joy, they experienced happiness. They experienced, you know, contentment. They experienced peacefulness. They didn't experience guilt. They didn't experience fear. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's all kinds of words that could have described their emotional state. And, and I would put before you that probably all those were present, but it's interesting that the author specifically said they were naked and they felt no shame. Why? Why? Now, granted, I think there's probably multiple reasons why. One is, is it, it is kind of cluing us as readers that something's about to change. It's, it's kind of getting us ready to the, for the next chapter. It's sort of a bridge, right? So it, it's cluing in us, that, okay, something's about to change within this narrative that hasn't been at play here. Another reason I would say is that the reason why he uses shame is he's trying to help us see that this word is going to be at the core of the human experience, and it comes on the scene really early. That's why I said at the beginning, I think, and I, Kirk Thomas, Thompson, I think he's right here. I think it is the primary weapon that Satan uses. And it's hard. Like, here's the thing about shame. It's silent and it's subtle. Shame has no desire to be famous. In fact, shame is fine with it living in the shadows. It's fine for you never to identify what it is because its goal isn't to be famous. Its goal is to destroy you. It's to keep you in isolation. It's to keep you where Adam was not good. And what did God say about Adam that it was not good to be alone? I'm telling you what, shame will keep you alone. Now, let me show you where I'm, I'm getting this. So, so we, we see this word being kind of like opened up that describes sort of this idyllic state between Adam and Eve that's bridging in and helping us see that this is gonna be at play in the core of the human experience. Look what happens here, starting in verse one. Now, the serpent was, most, was the most cunning or, or crafty of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say 
Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So all of a sudden we get introduced into a brand new character within the story of God and the serpent here. We don't get a whole lot of like who he is and where he came from and what's going on here and how this person, what, 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 like a snake talking, like what's going on with that? Was, did that not freak Eve out? Or, you know, we have not, none of the questions that we want to be answered is not answered because it's not the goal in the text. But we do find out later on in the revelation of God, specifically in the book of Revelation, that this serpent was Satan, Satan speaking through the serpent, the devil, the accuser, the, the father of lies, the one that's against Jesus and anyone that wants to follow after Jesus. And this serpent is crafty. It's, it's cunning. It's, it's, it carries this idea of being darkly shrewd. It's skilled in deception. And so its intention here is to fool the woman and to be fooled is to be shamed. And notice, just like the devil does, it comes distorting the very word of God. And you see that little distortion. You can't eat from any tree in the garden. Did God really say that? That's not what God said at all, right? He said, you can eat in all the trees. Just, just one I'm saying no to. Then Eve kind of responds back to her, but then also look what the devil does here. Not only do they does he distort the word of God, he also distorts the very character of God. Look what he says here. In verse four, after Eve responds to the serpent, the serpent says, no, you, you certainly are not going to die. Come on. In fact, verse five, God knows that when you eat, eat it, your eyes will what? Be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so at the heart of what's going on here and what the serpent is saying is that God is in fact holding something back from you. God is being stingy. God is the one that's saying, I, I don't want you to have all that I want to give to you. I don't want to expose all. Actually, I'm going to hold some things back from you. And it's interesting how Satan always does this within temptation. He has a way of, of twisting the very character of who God is. Because if anyone can just read Genesis 1 and 2, the last conclusion you're going to make about God is that God is stingy. What was his first command to humanity? I said this a few weeks ago. Enjoy. <laughs> not thou shalt not touch this or eat this or do, no. Enjoy. The literal translation is eat, eat. You see all these trees? Enjoy them. Go for it. Woo! Have a good time. That's, that's the command that he leads out with. So, so, the writer of Genesis goes to great lengths to show to you the last conclusion you're going to make about God is that he's stingy. Actually, the conclusion you're going to make about God is he's generous. Oh, he's kind. He's compassionate. Oh, my goodness. He's full of goodness. But the evil one comes and distorts not only the words of God, but convinces us that God's holding back. He's keeping you from something. And then look, verse six, it's um, commentators say that the way that this is written in the original language is that it's the enunciation of these words are, are kind of hard to say. And the reason why that's the case is because it, it wants the reader to kind of slow down and see this scene. Verse six, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at. 
and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. Then she also gave some to her husband who was also there with her and didn't say anything. And he ate it. In verse seven, look what happens. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So something has drastically changed in their relationship here and how they see one another. Something has changed in them. They're actually feeling something for the very first time because as I said, Genesis 2.25 gives them in the same situation where they're, they're naked and they felt no shame. They disobey God and their eyes are open. And as soon as their eyes are open, they want to cover up. Why? What is it that they're feeling that's driving them to cover up? What is it that they're feeling to where like all of a sudden they realize, whoa, this is way too vulnerable. Whoa, 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 I don't want you to know me like you are knowing me. And so the only solution I can think of in a reactive response is I gotta cover up, I've gotta, I gotta hide myself because I'm, I'm experiencing something in here that makes me feel really uncomfortable. And what is that? It's shame. Shame is not something that's outside of us. It's an embodied experience that is felt before we even know what it is. As one author says, shame is a sense of being completely insufficient as a person. The nagging feeling that you are defective as a person and unworthy. It's an emotional state. And the best words to put at it, at it is that you just feel bad. You feel bad about yourself, that there is something wrong with me. Not that you just did something wrong, but that you are wrong, that you are bad. That's why the writer goes on and says this, shame is the emotional equivalent of being nauseous all the time and never being able to throw up. That's how much you hate it. You see, being guilty is wishing you had done something different. Being ashamed is wishing you were someone different. Now listen to me. And this is where uh, there needs to be a level of nuance here. And I just don't have time to nuance it. This is the best way I can do it, guys. I, I think there is deserved shame and then there's undeserved shame. And we experience both. Undeserved shame is shame that you experience from someone's hurt, sinned against you, abused you, uh, used words against you. These are the undeserved shame that still... Still, it's still shame that's operating within you. And there are, there are ways in which I would encourage you, there's means by which you need to get, work through this in, in ways in context of community and all. I'm not primarily dealing with that, even though I still would put before you that it starts at the same place. They just might have different kind of paths, right? But it does start at the same place. But what I'm primarily talking about here is deserved shame. Adam and Eve deserved to feel shame. They disobeyed God. They did what God said not to do. There are shameful acts. And so shame is not a toxic emotion that we need to fully get rid of. I would put before you that the Bible teaches that there is a deserved shame. And guess look, 
All of us experience this because it wasn't just Adam and Eve that sinned against God. All of us did. They were representing all of humanity. And so may we not stand here or sit here this morning thinking, if I was on the scene, it would have been way different. No, it wouldn't have. You would have done the same thing that Adam and Eve did here. Representation of all of humanity, just like the Bible says, we are all like sheep who've gone astray. Just like Paul says in Romans, no, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Look, this is within us. There's not a bent toward God. There's a bent away from God. And so in one sense, there's a deserved shame that we feel because we, and I know this sounds really harsh, but in essence, this is what we've all done, including me basically giving the middle finger to God. That's what we've done. And so it's not just about defining what shame is. It's also recognizing how we respond to it. That's when it gets dangerous. It's like, all right, I feel something going on in me. All right, we can recognize and say that's, that's, that's what's called shame. But the danger comes in when we, how we respond to what we're experiencing. And we, and we see it here. The first response that's really dangerous that we see Adam and Eve doing here is what do they do? They, they cover up and they hide from one another. Look what it said again in verse 7. They knew they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So there's something that they experience in that moment that don't, do not want to feel and experience. There's a, there's a knowledge that they're learning about one another. There's a level of vulnerability they're making with one another. And they're both going, I don't want you to know me like this. So then therefore I'm gonna grab a fig leaf. And if you've forgotten what a fig leaf looks like, I got a picture of it, right? So that's a whole interesting thing of how sewing those bad boys together and how that worked out. But you, they got to cover up. They, they instinctively need to hide from one another. And we do the same. We do. We're just way more sophisticated at it, aren't we? You and I wear fig leaves every single day. And that fig leaf is what you're wearing every day to kind of show and make yourself beautiful, make yourself worthy, to make yourself worthy of acceptance apart from the work of Jesus. It's whatever you're trying to do in order to make yourself feel comfortable in your own skin. And everybody is doing this. Shame is not something like, oh, I dealt with that five years ago. <laughs> no. That's what shame wants you to think. Actually, they're kind of applauding you. Oh, thank you for saying that, right? That's what shame wants you to think. No, it is at play in every single one of us in this room. Our fig leaves can be like our careers. Our fig leaves can be our way we try to get an acceptance. It can be like through family, through morality and even immorality. And what, like I can't give you all the ways that we kind of put these little fig leaves on. My encouragement for you is to go like, all right, sit with the Lord. I know it's like, it's Thanksgiving. I got family coming in. This sounds crazy idea, but I'm just saying, give yourself about an hour or half a day or three hours or whatever you can give 10 minutes 
and just ask the Lord to show you how you're trying to hide yourself from others. Shame comes to you and your instinctive response is to move away from one another, not toward. But not only you see it there, you also see the response and how we hide and cover ourselves and we do it with God. So not only are we hiding from one another, we're also hiding from God. I mean, look what happens here. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of evening breeze. And what did they do? They hid. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is not how it has been. Before, whenever God showed up on the scene, they were walking together, talking about the beauty and what they've been doing and how they've been kind of extending their dominion. I know I'm ad-libbing here and I'm speculating, but, but that can be read into the text. But something drastically has changed with their relationship with God. They no longer want to be with them. They have to hide away from him. And we do the same. We convince ourselves that we're too bad, we're too far gone, that we're damaged goods, that God does not want me. In fact, he rejects me. And so we hide, we hide. And the devil uses shame to keep you from the very one who can bring healing to your shame. And that is God himself. Shame whispers and hisses that no matter what you do, you will always be defined by what you did or what was done to you. It mocks you. Shame wants you desperately performing for acceptance you don't believe you deserve. And the devil is behind it. As one writer says, this, this hiding from one another and hiding from God is a summary of the rest of human existence post-fall. We've become hiders. We hide from each other. We hide from friends. We hide because we're ashamed or afraid of what people will say about us or think about us. And we hide from the light. We hide from God because we can't pretend with him. Last thing we see here that shame does and how we respond to it, we blame. Shame will not let you own your stuff. It will not let you take responsibility for your own actions. It won't. I mean, notice here, where I ate shows up and their response back to God. Notice where it is, really important. Verse 12, the man replied, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I say it out loud, I ate. Verse 13, when he talks to the woman, so the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and said out loud, I, and it's all at the end. There's no ownership here. 
All of it, just blaming. You can't own your stuff. Shame will keep you from owning what you need to own about your own sin and the pain that you've caused and the hurt that you've inflicted. You must blame someone else. It's way too hard for you to own it because if you own it, all you're doing is reinforcing what's already going on in your head. And the thing is, is that if we don't own our stuff, what is actually gonna happen is that you continually isolate yourself from others. The very thing that God gives us in order to bring about healing of our shame is owning our stuff first before God. That's what confession is, right? That's why we have a a time of confession within our services every week because we wanna be a people that are in the habit of confessing before the Lord, bringing this into the light. And so as long as you cannot own your stuff, you're in your shame and you're isolated with God, if you can't own your stuff with people that you're in relationship with horizontally, then guess what you're going to do? You're going to live in isolation. And look, I, I don't think I'm just talking to myself here. Like it's hard. When you've really hurt somebody, it's really hard. If you're anything like me, you own it at first and then you justify. Maybe a little bit later, it's like I did the owning a couple hours later, hey, let me kind of explain that to you, right? What is that? I would put before you that's it. that's shame at work and its end goal is your destruction and part of that destruction is keeping you isolated. That's what I say, and I agree with Kurt Thompson that one of the most effective weapons that the devil will use is shame because it keeps you from God, it keeps you from one another, and it keeps you from yourself. Remember, I'm talking about deserved shame, shame that where we know we've broken the law of God and sinned against someone, like like there's a shameful act, We, we feel it, we experience it, that's what I'm talking about. And as one writer says, wherever shame comes from, it poses a serious threat to the belief that God loves us. That's what's dangerous about shame. You just can't convince yourself that God really loves you. It can lead to doubt whether you're valuable or worth and worthwhile in the eyes of God and other people. If we become convinced that we are useless, that our lives are pointless, we will struggle to see ourselves as creations of God with infinite indignity and value and worth. And so, so here what's kind of being said here, there's a story that shame will tell you and it's embedded in this quote. And that story is, is you're useless, that your life is pointless, that you are a nobody, that you are broken, you're damaged. That's the story of shame. And what God is wanting us to do is not live in that story, but live in the story of God. And the, what I'm trying to say there is that what we got to look at in Genesis 3 and not just what Adam and Eve did. Yes, boy, they brought... a train wreck, right? I'm not trying to dismiss that. But sometimes we have a tendency to focus on what Adam and Eve did at the expense of what God did. And what God is inviting us all to do in the midst of our shame is live under the story of God and answer this question, what did God do? He pursued. He sought them out. He came looking. I mean, look what he did here in verse eight. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Here he comes, right? 
Here he comes. The sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And God is not coming with this condemnation. He's not. He's not coming, you know, to bring down the, the judgment upon Adam and Eve. He's not. I'm not I, I think sometimes, guys, look, and I don't, maybe this is not you, maybe it is, but sometimes we still have a tendency to project our family experience on God the Father. And so in my home, if I messed up at home and I didn't get it situated with mom or she wasn't pleased with the outcome, then her language would be what? You wait till, say it, fill it in. Amen, you were in my home, right? You know what I'm saying? You wait till your dad gets home. You may think I'm crazy, but I'm telling you that kind of projection we put on our father, God the father. And we kind of read into this text that here he comes, just like my dad. What did you do? You know what I'm saying? Like the whole posture, here I come. That's not what we see with him. He came what? Asking questions. <laughs> Why is God asking a question, right? I mean, he knows, like, he knows everything. Like, he's the guy you want when you're doing some kind of quiz show, right? Or whatever that thing was, the million dollar question or whatever. It's like, he's my lifeline. I'm calling him up, right? It's like, what in the world? Why is he coming asking questions? It's out of love. It's out of curiosity. He's inviting them back into relationships. He's not coming down condemning. I mean, look what he says here. Verse 9. So the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? And that wasn't for God. That's for Adam. Think about that. The very first question that he asked humanity, where are you? Where are you right now? It's not the only question he asks. He continues on. Look, these are all not condemning. He's trying to draw out something. He's pursuing. He's going after them. Then he asks, who told you? Who told you? Did you? Or some translations have, have you? He's not coming in with some kind of anger. Oh, you guys did what I said not to do. Kaboom, right? It's like, no. God pursues, he, he seeks, he, he comes looking. While all hell is breaking loose on earth, God looks and he seeks the first couple out and to this disastrous consequences of their own choices comes God walking in the cool of the day. Where are you? Who told you? Did you? There's nothing more terrifying and fearful than for someone to know exactly where you are and then they don't come looking for you. Think about that for a second. You ever had played hide and seek and they don't come looking for you? Like that's not a good experience. That's not what God did. God knew exactly where they were and he went, he pursued. He came looking. 
What God wants to do with all of our shame is to bring it into light, not hide. And that's why he comes asking questions. And for the healing of our shame requires the presence of other people coming to find us. And that's exactly what we see God doing throughout the story of the Bible. And that's exactly what we celebrate every year at Christmas. It's called the incarnation where God took on flesh. And why did he do that? He didn't do it because he wanted to come and judge the world. Jesus said it specifically in John chapter three, the verse that we know for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have every eternal life. God so loved the world. He sent his son. He came in the flesh. He came looking. He came seeking after us. And that's the story of God all the way from Genesis to Revelation. When we're in our shame, deserve shame, when we're in our shame pit, here comes God seeking us out. What did Jesus say in Luke 19, 10? I have come to do what? Say it out loud. To seek, to seek to go after, to look for, to come find us and to save those who are lost, which is every single one of us in this room, including me. It is God. It's like God coming and climbing into the shame pit with us so that we can see that none of this scares him. None of it. None of this embarrasses him. And he wants to get you out of this pit so that you and I can live as he longs for us to live and what he intended us to live as. It's not coincidental that Jesus died on the cross completely naked. It's not. That's the writer, ultimately God, trying to connect the story for us. And as the writer of Hebrews says, he hung on that cross scorning our shame. He came, became shame for us so that we can be rescued from this. I think one of my, and I've said this a hundred times, one of my favorite illustrations in all of the Bible, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible is the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Such a, wonderful parable and story that speaks to the heart of God for humanity. If you've never read Tim Keller's little book called Prodigal God, man, I cannot recommend it enough. It's a great book that kind of helps unpack the story. But some of you may know, I mean, Luke 15 is just about a son who, who did some really shameful things. He just basically told his dad, I want you dead and I want your money. And he just went and blew it all and all kinds of shameful things. He came to his senses, wrote out a speech, and headed home. And this is a beautiful scene. I mean, this is a scene I long to I visualize in my own head. Is before he can even come, you know, maybe he's looking at the top of the hill and he sees his son, like the little head pops up, you know what I'm saying, from the horizon. And the dad doesn't wait. The dad does a shameful act in this culture. He runs after him. Like, you don't do that in that culture. And he embraces him, kisses him, gives him a ring of honor, massive celebration, doesn't even let him share his little speech. That's how shame is healed. 
One author puts it like this. The maker of heaven and earth is in a full sprint. Robes and all to embrace you, kiss you, put a ring on your finger and throw a feast in your honor. Whatever the opinion of the company you keep, you are of immeasurable value to the one who matters most. You are so valuable that the God of the universe suffered the indignity of limited human form, betrayal, public humiliation, and naked crucifixion to rescue you, not just from guilt, but also from the shame of your condition, all to enjoy an eternal life of friendship and communion with you. You cannot heal your shame in isolation. You cannot heal your shame through just self-compassion. It starts by being healed in a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And he's inviting us all to come out of hiding. This isn't going to freak me out. This is not going to make me embarrassed of you. I'm not going to reject you. I was rejected by my father so that you can come out of hiding. So I'll end with these few questions and then we will pray. Number one, what are you hiding? What are you hiding from someone's really close to you? Horizontal relationships. But more importantly, what are you hiding and keeping from God? I mean, he knows. Where do you sense shame driving you to isolation in your own life? Away from others and also away from God. And then lastly, what story are you living in right now? We're all living in some kind of story. And the story of shame is telling you this, just keep hiding. Don't let them in. Oh, no, no, no. God's already rejected you. He's done with you. No, you're damaged. Now stay. It's more safe there. Well, the story of God is that I've come for you. I'm pursuing you. I'm going after you. I got in this shame pit with you. You're not on your own. Let's bring this to the light so healing can start. Let's pray together. So maybe for just a, a minute or so, we can just be still Ask the Spirit of God to, to show what we need to hear from this. Maybe there's a question that stuck out at you. Maybe you need to grab someone even right now, go out in the atrium and have a conversation, bring something to light. God does not want you to continue to live in your shame. So let's just take a moment and be still before him. 
Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.